Well, Father, we do want to be the kind of believers who long for your appearing and who live with a readiness, who live with an alertness and attentiveness to your word so that you will find us faithful upon your return. Lord, as we open our Bibles once again this week and apply ourselves to study, would you please use this time to teach us and to grow us and to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it happened to me again this week. It happens regularly to me. It might you as well. I was with a group of people, and uh, we were outdoors, and we were talking, and one of the men noticed that there was a, a dead but totally preserved and dried cicada on this rock. You know what I'm talking about? Those prehistoric-looking monster bugs with wings that make a lot of noise, a cicada. And I looked at it, and we were looking at it. Do you ever look at one? And it tripped in my mind once again a thought that I regularly have, and it was this. It is absolutely impossible that that bug could come from nowhere, out of nothing, without a designer. It is just an incredible bug. It is amazing. And it speaks to the authenticity and the veracity of the creation story, doesn't it? How can you look at that and say evolution is true? The things that I observe around me point to the credibility of Scripture. Do you ever have that thought? I see it in the lives of people. I see it in the sinful hearts of people. I see it in the transforming power of Christ to save people. And I think that's exactly what the Word of God teaches right there. And it happened in another moment this week. I caught a glimpse of a fleeting headline, a sidebar headline, and I clicked on it to check it out. It's something I've been hearing about for about 10 years. It was from the BBC News, and it was entitled, Security Under the Skin. And it was an article about how the British military is developing and implementing now on a volunteer basis, and it's growing, of a microchip that is implanted under the skin so that they can track their soldiers. Makes sense, doesn't it? A dog tag on a chain around your neck is a bothersome thing. You might lose it in the... In the uh, fallout of war, it's not always reliable. You're not sure which dog tag belonged to which guy. And how tragic to see that big helicopter go down yesterday with those 30 Navy SEALs, huh? Broken hearts. So this microchip is being implanted under the skin. And I thought to myself, there it is. I think this a lot. The Bible's true. The, the economic political, technological environment in which we live does nothing other than reinforce the unfolding of prophetic scripture. It doesn't raise doubt. When I look at a cicada, I don't doubt the creation story. It reinforces the creation story. And when I look around at what's happening, even the headlines in our own country about a weakening United States that will gradually fade off into oblivion, there is no record anywhere in Scripture that the United States plays an important role in prophecy. And I thought about that headline, and I thought that's exactly the technology that is needed for the mark of the beast. 
Well, this morning I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13. We have, as you know, been uh, working our way around Scripture and rooting around, uh, trying to decipher what God's Word teaches in a prophetic manner about the things that are to come and the unfolding of history future. We spent some time last week on a big rabbit trail trying to show you how Daniel's visions and Daniel's prophecy, based upon his understanding of Scripture, builds a case for the fact that these 70 weeks designed for Israel to live out as a, as a penalty, in essence, for their ignoring of the Sabbaths, 70 Sabbath years they violated, which represented 70 sets of seven years, because every seventh year was a Sabbath. It also was based upon the fact that God told him, if you don't keep my law, you will be punished sevenfold. And so instead of just 70 years that Daniel had anticipated from Jeremiah, it was 70 times 7. We recognized and tried to show in our scripture, and it's pretty evident in Daniel chapter 9 there, that 483 of those years were completed upon the arrival of Christ on the Sunday, Palm Sunday we call it, when he walked into Jerusalem or rode into Jerusalem. But then there's a parenthesis. There's one week unfulfilled, one week of years, one set of seven years. And we believe that the study of Scripture shows that that is the week that is future. And in that week, and we've been representing it up here as this table with, with the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, and this seven year period is going to be, we call it the tribulation and it's divided in half and you'll see in our text this morning that when the man of abomination and we talked about this last week announces himself with great authority and great blasphemy in the mid part of the seven years that 42 months remain three and a half years remain and this will be the worst time it's called the day of the lord well, I want to tell you that as we look at the climate around us, as I've referenced, that there seems to be nothing that reinforces the idea that all of this has already happened, or that this is to be spiritualized, or that these terms and words don't mean what they say. That doesn't mean that it's easy to exegete or easy to understand, but as we unfold the scripture, it appears that God will bring to pass in the future exactly what the scriptures are showing. And so there's no chapter in the Bible, though he's mentioned in a variety of chapters, there's no chapter in the Bible that gives us more insight and more detail about this man of abomination. So we've looked over the tribulation, we're focusing on the man of abomination, and today, if we can get to it, we're going to see the mark of identification that he brings. And in Revelation chapter 13, uh, we see in John's vision an unfolding, an unveiling of this Antichrist. And Antichrist is a word that's used over and over in Scripture. And in fact, John, especially in the book of 1 John, said there would be many Antichrists. But this is the Antichrist, the man of power who will lead in a, you might think of it in a Hitler-like fashion, where he rules the world in his his power and his authority 
to, to deceive the masses and to take normal people and, and to bring them along in a certain direction and to sway their thinking is going to be a very powerful matter. It's going to be very powerful. And it won't be just the Third Reich that oversees a country. It will be a global influence. In our text today, he's called the beast. He has a variety of names. He's called the beast. Um, and it appears to me that it's talking about the Antichrist. And this is one of the names that is used. Some people say the beast is a huge computer that the Antichrist is going to use to track everybody. Well, I don't know what they'll call their computers or what it'll be like, but it certainly seems clear in Revelation chapter 13 that this is the same guy that the Apostle Paul taught about that we opened our message with last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who is called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And Jesus spoke about him in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse in verse 15 as the one who would rise up in the temple and commit this act that we call the abomination of desolation that Jesus did a throwback to Daniel's vision and said he's the one. That's going to identify him. The abomination, the abominable act will really surface and identify him along with a few other things. And so with the constraints of time, with our shortened message time, let's jump in. And if you're taking notes today, uh, you might uh, title this simply, uh, The Man in His Mark. The Man in His Mark, Facts and Details About the Antichrist. Facts and Details About the Antichrist. And we're going to... Um, have mercy upon you today, and we're not going to ask you to turn all over in your Bible to parts unknown, and we're just going to open to Revelation chapter 13. As I've referenced, this is a focused passage where the Antichrist is revealed. Now let's read a few verses and then let's comment, because it starts out with a difficult portion to understand. My Bible, the NIV that I use in Revelation 13, after verse 1, has a bold title over the rest of the passage called, The Beast Out of the Sea. You're going to see at the beginning of verse 11, it has another caption that is entitled, The Beast Out of the Earth. And what you're going to see here is that the Antichrist has a sidekick. He has a partner in crime. We're going to learn about him. We'll have to complete that next week because that will be also the focus on the teaching of his mark. Here's the man. It begins with verse 1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast. This is John writing down what he sees in his vision on Patmos. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head, a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Let's just stop right there because that is an example of why studies in Bible prophecy are very difficult. What in the world is he talking about? There are basic questions that you have to ask right away. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Who's the dragon? And because we don't have time, and if we had a classroom setting, we could do good study, and you would see clearly in Scripture that great dragon, and even in chapter 12, that we've passed over to go right to chapter 13, in chapter 12, clearly the dragon is none other than Satan himself. Now, he's standing on the shore of the sea. What does that mean? I don't think anybody can know for sure. 
When, because the Bible doesn't tell us, and Bible students have studied and looked, and some people think that the sea referenced here, because you notice that the beast now is going to come out of the sea. So is, it, is he like in a hidden cavity down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea or what? I don't know. And this is where it's difficult. What is a word picture? What is something that is symbolic? And what is something that is literal? Some Bible students think that that sea is representative of the sea of humanity. And so therefore they draw the conclusion that the beast or the Antichrist will be a Gentile. And then when you get to verse 11 in chapter 13, it says that, that this, um, his, this other beast, a lesser beast, but a very important one, who we believe to be called the false prophet, the Antichrist, and his wicked sidekick, the false prophet, he is a beast who comes out of the earth. And some Bible students will equate the earth there with land, and then they uh, equate that with the land of promise or the land of Israel, and that the false prophet will be a Jew. And so the Antichrist will be a Gentile and the false prophet will be a Jew and they will team up together to work together to take over the whole world. And you'll see that in a minute. I don't know that you can build a, a theology on that. It, it, you can speculate. You can wonder. And I don't know if this is a literal sea. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it would be like, you can kind of picture this, can't you, in a, in, a, in a movie theater on the big screen, this beast coming up out of the sea, up onto the shore. And, he, and he's got horns and heads and crowns. And certainly there must be some symbolism here. But when the Bible doesn't interpret itself, you've got to walk carefully. And so we know, though, that this beast arrives. Notice also some questions that come out of the next couple phrases, that he had ten horns and seven heads. And you'll notice if you looked at chapter 12, verse 3, that that is a, an exact description of Satan in chapter 12. But then it has these, these ten crowns, and, and crowns speak, speak of power or political realm, Horns speak of power in Scripture, and you build a case on this, and you're like, okay, what is this? And when you look at Daniel's prophecy, and when you look further in the book of Revelation, you see that clearly there will be, at the time of the beginning of this tribulation period, or going into it, a, a, a new world order that is set up by what we call the revived Roman Empire. And it appears to be based upon a ten-nation treaty, a ten-nation unity. We don't know exactly what this looks like. I can remember back when, when NATO was forming, people were looking at that in light of the revived Roman Empire. You now have the euro and a cooperation going with European nations. It is uh, difficult to discern exactly whether these nations have uh, completely been identified yet. And it may even include people that are not European. Maybe like a country like Turkey or Iran might end up unifying. But there will be, it looks like, at some time a reordering of world power to where it will be broken down under regions, ten regions, where maybe these are governors of ten regions, there will at least be an alliance of ten nations that hold all the power. And you can kind of see that taking shape in some ways, can't you? With the breakdown of a monetary system to where countries like the United States, though we still spend money and though we still lend money, we have no money, 
where a country like Germany this week brought a little bit of stability to one of the most unstable scenes we've ever seen in my lifetime, post-World War II, where Germany announces that we will lend the money that it takes to do this, but when you do the math, it's 130% or so of their gross national product. They absolutely do not have the money to do what they say they will do, even though they're the most stable country. And so you just see this dynamic, and you can see it taking shape, can't you? To where there will ultimately be someone will get together and say, we need to sit at a big table, and we've got to organize. And evidently, that is what's being spoken of here. The revived Roman Empire in a ten-nation union, led by ten powerful leaders. Okay, so where does the Antichrist come in? Notice that the dragon then gives the beast his power and his great and his throne and his great authority. One of the horns, according to Daniel, which is a similar imagery with the beasts and the the leopard and all that there, Daniel had a similar vision. One of the horns is going to rise up and take over all the other horns. So what begins as a ten-nation union is going to change when one of them surfaces. Let's get our list going here, though, now, and our facts and details about the Antichrist. And even though we might not be able to define exactly what the sea is and, and what the horns and heads exactly represent, one thing that is clear from verses 1 and 2, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because the Bible says that the dragon gives him his power, is that the, the beast here, the Antichrist, is, number one, he is a surrogate for Satan. He is a surrogate for Satan. Did you see what it says at the end of verse 2? The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. And by the way, you'll want to look for this in our study as we continue and when we pick it up. And it will actually be two weeks from today. Next Sunday, we will look forward with great joy of having Matt and Amy White with us. And Matt will preach, have the pulpit. And uh, so two weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll pick it up. But what you want to see here is you want to see that the dragon, Satan, the beast or the Antichrist, and in a minute you're going to see him replicate things that Jesus did. And then this false prophet enters the picture. And what do you have? You have Satan trying with all of his power to replicate the Godhead. You have Satan acting as though he were God the Father. He's got the Antichrist who acts as though he were the Messiah. And you've got the false prophet who empowers and sways and deceives and influences behind the scenes. And he acts as it were a Holy Spirit. And Satan longs to usurp God. Satan longs to take center stage. Satan longs to destroy the powerful work of Christ. And he's trying here like no other time. And so as we go through the study, you'll see this imagery of a triunity that is a false triunity. Point number one, though, as a fact or a mark of the Antichrist is that he is a surrogate for Satan. Now notice what's going to, number two, cause him to, number two, he will captivate the attention of the whole world scene. He will captivate the attention of the entire world scene. Look what it says, verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. It is interesting in the language here, and let me comment on this a little bit further, that when the first couple verses start out, that this beast who comes out of the sea, that is evidently the revived Roman Empire, and is a ten power head, there's ten crowns, ten horns, ten head, 
the part of the heads of leadership, that it is an, the, the name beast is given to this entity of power. But as you read, this entity of power narrows down to the one beast that surfaces above the rest, and it takes on a persona. It is a person. It looks, the, it looks like it is an individual, a world leader, one identifiable, identifiable person. You might think of it, and I think I've referenced this already, as the Third Reich was the beast in Germany. But then it narrowed itself down to be identified mostly with a man, not really with a system. Hitler himself became the face of the Third Reich. He became the force of darkness. And it is interesting to look at that model in Germany, how that seems to be somewhat almost a microcosm of what's going on here, like a regional happening of what happened here. Hitler had people behind the scenes shaping his influence, shaping his theology, shaping his drive for the occult. They say people closest to Hitler have recorded in history that there were times when the masses gather and he got up to give his most influential speeches that the voice that came out of him wasn't even his voice. They had never heard that voice before, as though Satan were speaking through him. That he had horrible, horrific nightmares, and he would wake up screaming and seeing things in the dark. He seemed to be very much a tool of Satan, an individual who was given over, and there were forces of darkness working through him. That's a lot what this is. An individual on a global scale who's going to do what Hitler did in Germany during World War II. Second thing, he will captivate the attention of the world scene. How is he going to do that? Verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. There is going to be evidently, and Bible students debate over this verse, well, what does it say? Because the word says it seemed to be a fatal wound. So what was it that he got stabbed with a dagger or a sword in some kind of an assassination attempt? He was shot as though he were uh, being assassinated. He went down. The whole world is watching, and it appears that he's dead. There's no other option. The word goes out that he's dead. But then, in a short time, empowered by Satan, he is able to resuscitate. He's able to appear on the world scene, and it's though he has a resurrection. It won't surprise me that it'll be three days later that he's seen back on the news. And so people debate, Bible students debate, because there's no evidence in Scripture that Satan can give or take life apart from permission of God. And so it's possible that under God's sovereign watch and God's plan of allowing these things to unfold, where he takes even the wicked and works them out to his own end, that God gives Satan the power to resuscitate this individual who, by all appearances, is killed with a fatal wound. What that's going to do is very rapidly take him above everybody else. That moment, and that kind of makes sense to us, doesn't it? That fits, that there would be a known, identifiable group of leaders who are holding the world together, and then, in the middle of difficult times, an assassination attempt, or what appears, by any definition, a real assassination, and then we're shocked... And then the news and the technology's there, isn't it? Real time, all around the world, everybody watching, and the Antichrist appears in good health, and he assures everybody that everything is fine, and this will surface him in global popularity above everybody else. 
and there will be a fading of the rest of the powers. In fact, as he becomes entrenched, much in Hitler-like fashion, he will totally break treaties that he's made with the other countries. He will abuse them and he will annihilate them. There's another thing you need to think about as we continue through these characteristics of the Antichrist. But remember, this is a time where the birth pains are increasing. And if this beast comes out of the sea and the revived Roman Empire takes place at the beginning of the seven years or right before it or right there, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, this final seven years of tribulation, then we believe and it would appear that the seal judgments are being broken and there are worldwide cataclysms, there are all kinds of things happening Think about how right now, even, I think I heard it just this week, didn't I, that another, or last week, another volcano changed the routing or the ability of uh, planes to fly. And one, one volcano goes off in Iceland, and it shuts down a third of the airline industry for a, for a day or two. What happened if six or eight volcanoes are going off, strategically located around the world, what if there are multiple tsunamis and earthquakes going on at the same time? And so things seem fairly stable. The revived Roman Empire is implemented and working. There's a one-world money system. Where the, there's a reconfiguration of power around the world. Everybody's breathing like, we're going to get through this, even though our good old America's gone and different things like that. And so then the seal judgments begin to be broken, the groundwork is laid, the birth pains increase. How important and how strategic at a time like that, when world powers are being watched 24-7 on non-stop news coverage, one of them's assassinated, a day or three days later he surfaces again, he's full of life and vigor and answers, and in the middle of all this stuff, Volcanoes, disrupted airlines, disrupted banking, disrupted electronics, whatever. He assures everyone that everything's going to be fine. And so the world power narrows itself down to really focus on this one guy. And there he is. He's a surrogate for Satan. He will captivate the attention of the world. And notice, look at, let's go on in verse 4. So he has this at least pseudo resurrection, if not a real resurrection. I, I won't commit myself on it. I don't know. He appears to be fatally wounded. Now he's resurrected. And then it says in verse 4, and men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? So number three Based on the last part of verse 4, I want you to see that he will globally, he will fascinate the masses. That's what they're going to say about him. Who's like this guy? Who can bring war against him? This guy's unbelievable. I don't know what he stands for. I don't know what his policies are, but I'm full of hope. And he's going to join the world. He's going to bring the masses together and he's going to bring great fascination. And haven't we seen in the political climate at a microcosm levels, masses of people, even back to Hitler, even before that, even to, to just the past few years of the political climate in America, where one person can seemingly come out of nowhere and the entire masses, many, many people, millions of people will gather and follow and there's almost zero information to go on. And so people's hearts are turned. And we haven't even seen the beast out of the land yet. We haven't had the false prophet come who is the one who is going to be the agent as though he were a Holy Spirit to turn the hearts and the minds of people in great deception. 
in mass. It's going to just accelerate. It's just going to grow. And so he will bring a great fascination. He will fascinate the masses globally. Now let's wrap up with just a couple more thoughts here. And then we'll pick it up in two weeks with more information and facts about the Antichrist. And we'll have to save meeting the beast out of the earth for then. Look at verse 4 again. Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority. Here's a timing. Look at this. For 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And he was given power to make war against the saints and conquer them. Let's just stop there. But one of the things we see here is that he will begin to speak in a powerful, persuasive way, and it will be very blasphemous. I've written this number four on my point as this, that he will desecrate what is sacred. He will desecrate what is sacred. Notice what it says. He was given a mouth to utter proud words, verse 5, the beginning, proud words and blasphemies. It goes on to say that he is going to blaspheme God's name and God's dwelling. I believe that this is nothing other than John writing down what Jesus already talked about in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 15, what Daniel reveals in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12 in his visions, the abomination of desolation. There evidently will be a rebuilding of the temple of God. And the Antichrist is going to blaspheme the dwelling of God. Could that be a reference to the very temple in Jerusalem? Some people think that the, one of the ways that the Antichrist is going to firm up his power base and become more popular, not only this fatal wound that allows him to, to grow up, some people think that that's a country that was broken and then recovers and then becomes an influential country. It seems to me it's a person. But they say that the Antichrist will get his power where in Jerusalem there is now an Islamic mosque on the Temple Mount that he will negotiate a peace between Israel and the Arabs so that the Israelis can rebuild the temple on the mount. Whether it will be shared space, I doubt that. I'll tell you, back in 2000, do you remember Gulf War I? I was in a hotel with a bunch of pastors at a meeting, and, then, and it lit up under uh, the first Bush presidency, and um, Saddam Hussein was flinging Scud missiles down from Iraq into Israel. Do you remember that? In about the year 2000? And I remember dancing around the hallway, kept looking at the TV. I was sure that one of those scuds was going to pop the Islamic mosque on the Temple Mount and level it. Why wouldn't that work well? Because it's got to be cleared out of there, and then there's going to be a temple, evidently a literal temple rebuilt, because remember, this is a time about national Israel particularly. This is a time where it's the 70th week, prophesied by Daniel, where he read in Jeremiah, based upon Moses, where they had 490 years that dealt specifically with national Israel. And temple worship will evidently be reinstated. And there it will be. And the, the Antichrist will be involved in making all that happen and bring a peace on the Arab allied nations and Israel who will never make peace until the Antichrist brings a calm and people will say, peace, peace, everywhere peace. 
But then it's going to light up. Notice what he does here. He will desecrate that which is sacred. And I think that that is the abomination of desolation. He will, what he will do is he will, in a position, evidently the temple, a place identified with God and his people, he will elevate himself. He will speak proud words. He will blaspheme God. And they will begin in a spiritual way to follow this guy. So what starts out as political transitions over into a spiritual belief, transitions over into a focus on this leader to where he becomes the Messiah. He becomes God. He becomes the one that is above all else. And we will look to him, and he is so proud and so blasphemous that he desecrates the temple and he sets himself up. We've seen this happen before. We've referenced this in Daniel chapter 3. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? World powers have done this on occasion. They have so overwhelmed their people that they are able in their arrogance, in their blasphemous words, and in their pride, they are able in their boasting to build, as Nebuchadnezzar did, out in the plain of Dura, a high statue fashioned after their own face, call everybody that's anybody together, tell the band to play, tell everybody they have to bow down and worship the statue. That's exactly a model of what he's going to do. Set himself up to where he is worshipped. Later you're going to see if you don't take the mark, you you haven't worshipped. The worshippers will take the mark and anybody else will be sought out to be killed. He will desecrate what is sacred, but let's conclude with this thought that's right there in verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. And to exercise his authority for 42 months. That blasphemy, and it's spoken of later in verse... And then it says 42 months. How long is 42 months? It's three and a half years. And I think that's when the abomination of desolation... I think that's what John is referencing in his, in his vision. And so number five that you need to know, facts and details about the Antichrist is this. That he will operate within a time limit. He will operate within a time limit. Well, this is kind of interesting stuff. We have to be careful not to let our speculations go too far. But it certainly appears that that's what's taking shape. He is a surrogate for Satan, number one. He will captivate the world with his resurrection, quote-unquote. Number three, he will fascinate the masses globally by rising up and becoming a world power. And it will turn spiritual. It will become a religion to follow this guy. Number four, he will desecrate that's what, that which is sacred. But number five, he will operate within a time frame. You know, we get to do something that maybe some of you like to do. You sit down with a good book. Others of you, you fight it as long as you can. And then one time in a moment of weakness, you give in. And you read the last chapter. And you find out how the story ends. Aren't you thankful that we can read the last chapter and we can know how the story ends? Aren't you thankful that God is in control? That though the dragon will roar and the earth will tremble, that God is in control. And I love it at the end of the story, and we'll have a message to wrap it up. God wins, and Satan and the beast are thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And all of God's people live in heaven forever. I'm telling you, it's not a storybook ending. It's the word of God. It's the vision of John. And it's true. And Jesus said, every one of these words will be fulfilled. Do you know Christ today, my friend? If you don't know Christ, and the timeline kicks in, we'll talk more about what that means. 
This all could take shape in a hurry in our world today. If you don't know Christ, you will be duped. You will be suckered in. You will have no discernment. If you know Christ, I hope that you can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at Nebuchadnezzar's statue of himself that we just referenced. Remember when the band played and everybody buried their head in the sand and got their rear end up in the air? Bowing down to the statue? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just standing there. Don't you love those guys? Telling you, going to put you in a furnace seven times hotter than hot. Fine. You can't threaten me with heaven. Right? Don't you love that? Are we the people of God or not? Are we people of the book? Do we believe the word? Are we going to stand before false gods? Are we going to bow to them? Where's your heart today? This is a day for God's people to be God's people. This is no time for wimpy Christians. It's a time for us to be students of the book. For us to know that the book ends with God in control. And Jesus coming out of heaven on his white horse with the sword out of his mouth, wiping out the armies of the Antichrist. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. How about you? Do you know Christ? Have you entered into faith in Christ, your sin forgiven, living according to the book, part of God's church, this great mystery, the church, his bride? If not, today you can become part of his bride, the church, admitting your sinfulness, receiving his, his finished work at the cross is for you. Become what we call born again. Saved. Saved from what? Your sin. Your sin that you can do nothing about, but that God, out of his great love, while we were still sinners, sent Jesus to die in our place. He did something about it for us. Praise God. Let's bow in prayer. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, then you're not ready for his return. You're not ready to stand before him one day. You're not ready to deal with the kinds of events that the birth pains could bring even upon the church before the tribulation period unfolds. I invite you to secure heaven, get your sin forgiven, become a new creation in Christ today. You do it by looking to God who sent Jesus, His Son, His perfect Lamb, to take your sin and die for that sin at the cross. You give over your sin to Him And he gives you back his righteousness. It's only by faith. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to buy it. You just have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that God raised him from the dead. And then Paul said, you will be saved. Today, right now, is the moment of salvation. It's not easy. It's not easy for some, but it's not difficult for any of us to acknowledge we're sinners. Will by faith you accept the finished work of Christ on your behalf for the saving of your soul? I hope so. You can do that right now in the quietness of the moment. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I cast all my sin on him at the cross. And I receive your forgiveness and new life. 
Father, do your work in our hearts and our minds and embolden us, those of us who are struggling in our faith and we're wimpy Christians, Lord, would you empower us and strengthen us? Help us to know that we're on the victor side and that Jesus Christ is our great victor. Father, for those who need to cry out and be saved today in their heart before you, would you please show them. Drop the scales off their eyes. Open blind eyes, Lord. Soften hard hearts. May your spirit make this very clear. May they cry out in their heart to you, the living God, for the salvation of their soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.